there are a lot of different metaphors in scripture where the topic is the change that God makes in a life when he enters it. One of the ones I find interesting is the phrase, he replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And when you think about that contrast between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh, the first thing that comes to my mind is stone is cold and dead and unfeeling, right? And flesh is warm and full of life and feeling. Some folks think that when you turn from this way and move this way, all your difficulties and sorrows will go away. I think part of the reality is a stone-cold heart doesn't feel the pain of those around them. But a warm, beating, fleshly heart will feel the pain of those around us. And so even after we come to Christ, there might be a heightened sensitivity to the pain of those who are around us. And if your goal in becoming a Christian is to avoid all pain, you might as well give that up now because there is pain when we encounter the difficulty and pain that others face. This morning I want to tell you a story. The story is found in John 19 and um, it's a drama in six parts. And rather than read all 17,000 verses of the chapter, I'm going to just read a few verses at the beginning to orient you so that you know where we are in the scripture. And then because it's a narrative, I'm going to just tell you the story. John 9, as he walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And so the story ensues. Part one of the story is Jesus and his disciples. They're walking along, they happen to see a blind man. The disciples' first thoughts according to this particular story is, who sinned? Well, well that question reflects the beliefs of that particular day and age. It's not, it's not the first time you've heard this kind of thinking. If, if something's wrong in a person, if there's a disability, that someone must have sinned. Um, and the writer, John, wants us to know that this kind of thinking needs to be corrected. And, and you understand that John's gospel is written after Luke's gospel. And it may be that one of the reasons John is inspired to address this is because Luke was also inspired to address this belief of his day, that if someone was born with a disability, that somebody sinned. If you go back to Luke 13, 13, you have this encounter. At that very time, there was there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, 
Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the other people living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will also perish just as they did. Bad things happen to everybody. And if bad things happen, that isn't necessarily a sign that somebody sinned or did something wrong. But it's interesting to me that in our story in John 9, Jesus and the disciples are walking down the road. They see a blind man and the disciples' first thought is about doctrine. It's about theology. And yet the first thought of Jesus is the man. He sees the man. He sees the man in his suffering. You might think when you read this passage that Jesus is saying that God caused this man to be born blind so he could reveal God's glory later. That really isn't in the text. If you went back to the original Greek manuscript, you would notice that verse 3 doesn't even have the word blind in it. What it says is, he was born that the glory of God would be revealed through his life. That's true of all of us. The specific details of our lives are very different, and the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Regardless of the details of our birth, infirmities or not, we are all born that the glory of God can be revealed in us. Part two of the drama, Jesus and the blind man. Notice the interactions between Jesus and the blind man. Did you hear the blind men profess faith in Christ? Nope, not there. Did you hear the blind man say, Lord, would you heal me, have mercy on me? Nope, not there. What happens? What are the interactions? All that happens is Jesus is talking to his disciples and then he makes a little mud and puts it on the blind guy's eyes. And then we have these words from Jesus, Go and watch off this mud in the pool of Siloam. I, I don't know if this is coincidence or if this is uh, an, a quotation, but you remember in Luke's verse, the question asked to Jesus, what about the people for whom the tower of Siloam fell on them and killed them? And now we're back at the pool of Siloam. And I'm thinking, is there a tie in there? I don't, I don't know if we're supposed to catch something but that with that but as soon as he gets the instructions the man is off to this pool washes do you notice that when he's washing we don't have any indication that anybody's watching or paying any attention that that no one witnessed this that's interesting to me There's no miracle to be observed. He's been sent to the pool of Siloam. What do we know about this pool? What, what do you know about the pool of Siloam? The pool of Siloam is a pool in Jerusalem that is fed by a spring, was once fed by a spring, 
that Hezekiah, king of Israel, hundreds of years before, built a tunnel under the city out to a fresh spring so that if an army ever came and laid siege outside the walls, they would still have a water source into the city. So it is like life flowing into the city. That's what the pool of Siloam is. That's where the water from the spring is captured so the people can survive the threats of the enemy. Seems like an appropriate place to wash, doesn't it? In a life-giving spring. The story, especially according to verse 16, is a sign, just like the water being turned to wine at the wedding. This event points to something. I tend to think a sign is a little more than a miracle. It has meaning. It points to something very specific. And now, once the blind man can see, the drama is going to shift, and we're going to find out how well the neighbors see. Blind man couldn't see, but he can see now. But I wonder what the neighbors see. This is drama part three, the blind man and his neighbors. Blind man comes back to where he was. Jesus is gone. Jesus didn't even hang around for this. Do you notice that? I mean, you can't call it callous. He healed the guy's eyes, right? But, but where'd he go? We don't know. But he's gone, doesn't hang around. And the blind man goes back to where he was, interacts with his neighbors, and his neighbors are not quite sure who this guy is. I mean, he looks like the blind man, but he can see. So by definition, he can't be the blind man anymore. Maybe he's a relative of the blind man. I mean, maybe this is a brother they didn't know about. Or, I mean, who is this guy that, that looks like the blind man, but is not the blind man? No, he says, I'm the man. I'm the guy who was blind. It's fascinating to me that his blindness has become his identity. And the neighbors won't allow him to escape it. You're the blind man. Well, what are they going to call him now? The blind man who can see? That, that's an odd moniker for someone to hold. It is sad when our disability becomes our identity. And you might ask, is there any escape at that point? Will people let you escape when your disability has become your identity? The neighbors will not believe that this man is the blind man until they understand how he is not blind anymore. He can't be anything other than the blind man. And not knowing what to do with this guy, because all their categories are shattered at this point, the neighbors, well, they just need an official pronouncement. I don't know why. Maybe they're afraid something demonic is at work here. I mean, but how many demons go around healing people? I mean, do we always need to have someone tell us what to do, what to believe, or to interpret reality that is right in front of us for us? Incidentally, in case you missed it, this healing was done on the Sabbath. That's going to matter to some folks, not to others. In any event, drama part four, the neighbors take the man to the authorities. 
We got to figure this out. We got to understand what happens here. If we don't understand it, we're not going to be comfortable with this. We're not going to know what to call this guy um, because, like, he's the blind man and he's not blind. So the Pharisees, at the insistence of the neighbors, begin to question this poor guy. You would think after a day like this, he's had enough, right? Imagine if your whole identity is shaken. Your neighbors will barely believe who you are. You've lived without seeing all your life. And finally, you're seeing things around you for the first time. I'm thinking there's some things to negotiate emotionally in this poor guy. But rather than get a break, he's hauled before the authorities for questioning. Okay. Until now... As a blind man in society, he's essentially been forgotten and ignored. In fact, everybody, the passage tells us, believed that his blindness was the result of someone else's sin. And what that meant was, we don't want to get too close to him. Because some of that bad karma might rub off on us. We don't want him near our children. We don't want anything to do with someone who is already manifesting the judgment of God because he's blind. I hope you hear John correcting that bad theology. I hope you hear that. It's not about sin. This is not about the man's sin that he's blind. But it gets questioned. Everyone is interested in this man that they ignored for the first how many years of his life now. Pharisees say, how'd you receive your sight? Man says, he put mud in my eyes. They didn't see that coming. Blind man didn't see it coming either. I washed, now I see. Pharisees offer judgment. Man can't be from God. He healed you on the Sabbath. It's a summary judgment, isn't it? One aspect of this sign transgressed their value system, and there's no need to think further. No need to look any further. We can just toss all of this happening into the rubbish bin because it happened on the Sabbath. But some of them, more thoughtful ones, considered for a moment longer. But if he's a sinner because he healed on the Sabbath, how could a sinner perform a sign like this? It's a really good question. So they ask the blind man a theological question he's not prepared to answer. What do you say about this guy? Your eyes were the ones that were healed. And the man says, he must be a prophet. And he must be. All the evidence points that way. The Pharisees say, none of this makes any sense. A prophet wouldn't have worked on the Sabbath. A sinner cannot perform signs. Maybe this is all a hoax. Call in that kid's parents. We need to find out what's really going on here. If this really was the blind man or someone's trying to scam us and pull the wool over our eyes because none of this adds up according to our religious categories. We don't do things like that, right? We never get boxed into our own religious categories. 
Every once in a while I hear someone say to me that God will never answer any prayer of a sinner other than the prayer for repentance to become a Christian. And I wonder about that statement. I wonder if that's something that has been entrenched in our categories and we just sort of spout off rather quickly because it seems to me that if Jesus will go to Calvary's cross for a sinner, that he might just listen to one before he got there. It seems to me that God is listening to sinners all the time. And that somehow our understanding of prayer might be hobbled diminished. When we make ourselves judges like that, we get ourselves into trouble. Don't get between God and the people he loves. Don't exclude people based on your wisdom. I believe Jesus is looking for every righteous, reasonable way he can include as many people in the kingdom as possible whether they understand things exactly right. He is the door. He's the one who establishes the criterion of who enters. And we have the witness of his word, but in his word, he does not make us judges of who gets in and who does not. He remains the door and he has died that whosoever will may enter. For he is not willing that any would perish, but all would come to eternal life. Regardless, the Pharisees don't have any categories for this. Healed on the Sabbath, he's a sinner, he's no prophet. And so they call the parents. I mean, what do you do? when things don't add up theologically for you. Whatever you believed from Sunday school or whatever you learned in elementary school or whatever prejudices you were taught, when you stack them up to the current news, the new world which we live in, when it all doesn't hang together, what, what do you do? And that's the place where we are. Some Pharisees tighten their fists around their interpretation of the Sabbath law. But others see something unusual here, and they dare to take a peek into what is new. They lean into the investigation. Is there an easy answer here? Is this a case of mistaken identity? They've got to ask more questions. And so they bring their parents in, and the Pharisees say to the parents, is this guy your son? If so, having been born blind, how can he see now? These parents are wiser than most, and they see the trap as it is being set. They don't want to take sides in this fight. When you take sides, you place yourself at risk. And these Pharisees have already announced that anyone who believes Jesus is a prophet is going to get booted out of the synagogue. And they don't want to get booted out of their church. And so they're seeing this trap develop. And, and they think about what they're going to say. 
And in their mind, they've decided they would really rather run away than get caught in this trap. They don't want to be between the two sides of a holy war. So the parents give part of an answer. Just a part of an answer. Yes, that is our son. He was born blind. How he can see? No idea. But you can plainly see that he is an adult, a responsible adult, responsible for himself. He can answer for himself. Wash their hands and they walk away from their kid. Just like that. Step outside the trap set for them. Let the kid take responsibility for it. He's old enough. We supported him for the number of years we had to. He's on his own now. It's his problem. So the Pharisees call the blind man back. Give glory to God, they say. We know that this man who healed you is a sinner. And the man responds, whether he's a sinner or not, those are the Pharisees' categories, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. There's only one thing I know. Yesterday I was blind. Today I can see. Boils down to that. Yesterday I was blind. Today I can see. The Pharisees ask again. What did he do? How did he open your eyes? And the man, who probably is getting tired of the Inquisition by now, says, I already told you but you won't listen. Why do you ask the same question again? Are you deciding whether or not you want to follow him yourself? Oh, he probably shouldn't have said that. That was probably just adding a little bit of fire, a little bit of extra fuel to the fire. But it's a really important question because that's exactly what they should be doing, right? But rather than trying to figure out if this was a sign that pointed to something real, they're looking for a way to frame Jesus rather than to learn about Jesus. In some way, they're not that far away from the disciples. I mean, the disciples see the blind man, they just want to talk theology. It's Jesus who sees the man whose heart of flesh begins to feel the pain of the man and chooses to do something about it. At this point in the drama, the Pharisees turn to abuse. It's scary how quickly adherence to the law becomes power and abuse. The Pharisees say to the blind man who's no longer blind, Boy, I wish we had a name, don't you? You are one of Jesus' disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where Jesus comes from. Blind man is not ready for this discussion, but he steps in anyway. Now that is something, he says to the Pharisees. You don't know him. He wasn't on your radar, but he opened my eyes. Hmm. You should, hear, you should hear the man saying, he's great and you don't know him. God doesn't listen to sinners, only those who obey his will. 
Never has a man born blind been healed before. So this must be a sign or a miracle. But if he were not from God, he could never have done this. This is a sign. So even though the sign is described, even though the good news of something new breaking into the world is confirmed, the Pharisees miss it. And their judgment is, you were born entirely in sin, and they kick him out of the synagogue. Here's the verdict. The Pharisees are so fixated on their interpretation of the law, they cannot see the presence of God or the signs that point to him. Think about how tragic that is. There's a sixth part to the drama. This is a part we don't deserve, but we get. And when you think about it, for the man who was healed, having his sight restored after a lifetime of blindness might be gift enough. And yet now this guy, just because he's been healed, has been kicked out of the synagogue. And Jesus goes and finds the man. I love this part of the story the best. It's not just his blindness that has to be healed. His getting booted out of the synagogue has got to be healed too. The abuse, the pain he endured at the hands of the religious folks, he's got to have that healed as well. And Jesus says to the man, do you believe? And remember, in the initial encounter, the man is blind. He can't see who's putting mud on his eyes. He puts mud, Jesus puts mud on his eyes and the man walks away and he hasn't seen Jesus. He has to go to the pool of Siloam to be healed. And so when he washes off the mud and actually realizes he can see, he has no visual idea of who it was that heals. He knows it was Jesus. He's heard the news in town. But he doesn't know what Jesus looks like doesn't know. And he's been in questioned all afternoon about who did this and how he did it. But he can't really say because he's never seen Jesus. And then Jesus comes back and talks to him. Do you believe, Jesus says? Who is it that I'm supposed to believe in? Jesus says, now you have seen him and I am he. And the man replies quickly, Lord, Lord, did you catch that word? Lord, Master, I believe. The story ends with some haunting words in an epilogue. These are words I don't like. Verse 39, Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment so that those who do not see may see and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said to him, surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, 
If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. These are words of judgment. Jesus' presence in the world brings judgment. Some folks will be able to see, others will not. The Pharisees respond, are you talking about us? And Jesus says, if you had been ignorant of these matters, all of these kingdom matters, you might have excuses, but you proclaim to be the people of God. You proclaim yourself to be the people of God's kingdom. And so you are accountable for your wrong opinions and your wrong attitudes, your wrong actions. Your sin remains. And it makes me ask the question, are there signs that I am missing? Why, why do we sometimes think that it's okay for us to do nasty things in defense of our Christian convictions? Why is it so easy to see people's opinions and not see the people themselves? Why do we so quickly objectify our enemies or those we think are our enemies rather than loving them and praying for them? I have a friend who believes very, very differently than I do. She um, volunteers every Saturday at a Planned Parenthood clinic, and she is there as a volunteer to usher people across the line through the protests into the clinic. As I say, we don't see eye to eye on a lot of issues. But she hates Christians. And I talked with her about that one time. And I asked, why? She said, every Saturday when I go to volunteer, I have horrible encounters with Christians. There's a line painted on the sidewalk which is the line across which protesters are not allowed to go by law. And in this particular city, this is a different state. As soon as police or law enforcement are gone, the Christians all cross the line and get in my face. And when they see law enforcement come, they get back on the other side of the law, of the line. And they have megaphones and they walk up and they shout Bible verses right into my face this far away. It's deafening. It is painful. She says, I hate Christians. They're horrible people. Somehow these folks have weaponized scripture. They don't see her. They don't see her opinion. They have dehumanized her. And by their continuous unlawful behavior and hateful tactics, they drive her further and further away from the kingdom with every 
Bible verse they hurl at her. Now, I'm certainly not a pro-choice supporter. There's an appropriate way, appropriate times for protesting. But I am also not a fan of abusing people who think differently than I think either. And so I asked, do we see people or do we just see positions? Do we see on those lines of protest people for whom Christ died? Or do we just see political enemies? Never ever forget that while we were still sinners, while we were still acting out our sinful desires, while our opinions were still opposite of the kingdom of God wisdom, it was then that Christ loved us enough to die for us. Do we love in the same way? Do we care for others in the same way? Do we embrace our neighbors in the same way? Or if folks don't line up with our thinking, do we just boot them out of the synagogue? sing with me. Let it be said of us that the Lord was our passion, that with gladness we bore every cross we were given, that we fought the good fight, that we finished the course. Knowing within us the power of the risen Lord, let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. By mercy made holy, by the Spirit made strong, let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. Till the likeness of Jesus be through us made known. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our soul. Let it be said of us, we were marked by forgiveness. We were known by our love. And delighted in meekness, we were ruled by His peace. Heeding unity's call, 
Joined as one body that Christ would be seen by all. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. By mercy made holy, by the Spirit made strong. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. Till the likeness of Jesus be through us made known. Let the cross be our glory and the Lord be our song. I've often wondered if the result of the protest would be different if rather than shouting with a megaphone, the Christians in that city would stand and pray for those who were heading in and those who were volunteering and prayed that the light of Christ would be revealed to them and that the blind would see. Lord Jesus, Open our eyes that we may see the people around us. Brothers and sisters in Christ as well as enemies of the cross. Give us a love that is beyond comprehending. That our hearts of flesh would reach out to the hearts of others. Continually just demonstrating your love for the world. Continually engaged in your mission that none might perish. Give us that kind of love for others, Lord Jesus. The same kind of love you have given to us. And now by the grace of God, may you love one another and all that you meet well to the glory of God now and forever. Amen. <laughs>